Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. During the early 19th century, counties across the United States created poorhouses to assist financially challenged residents. Historically, poverty-stricken people in most communities could apply for some assistance from local government officials, but this system proved very expensive. Often, officials would order destitute people from the community if the people could not change their financial situation quickly. To still provide, but to reduce the cost of government assistance, Many counties established poorhouses in the early 1800s. Poorhouses provided destitute people with shelter. They also commonly provided residents with employment opportunities. Women cared for the house's upkeep, while men would take classes to learn a trade or work in farm fields to provide food for the poorhouse's residents. Many rested on optimistic assumptions about the possibilities of reform, rehabilitation, and education. Their sponsors believed that institutions could improve society through their impact on individual personalities. Because of their environmental sources, crime, poverty, ignorance, and mental illness could be eradicated. Yet taking in everyone proved to be out of the wheelhouse for many of these institutions. And after nearly 100 years, the campaign to restrict poor houses to the old and helpless finally succeeded in the early decades of the 20th century. In New York, by the end of the First World War, the poorhouse was being looked upon as an institution mainly for the care of the aged and infirm. Here, in the gradual transformation of poorhouses, lay the origins of public old age homes. The departure of children, the mentally ill and the able-bodied did not mean that conditions in poorhouses improved dramatically for those left behind. Throughout the early 20th century, investigations routinely uncovered wretched conditions. In some less populous states, poorhouses remained relatively unspecialized, mixing children, the insane, sick, able-bodied, and elderly. Old age homes paid a price for their origins as poorhouses. Emerging as part of the structure of public relief, they never wholly lost the stigma attached to welfare. They were places of last resort, dreaded by the poor. However, places like the Lawrence County Home for the Aged began forming. Built in 1926, homes like this were meant to turn over a new leaf. But this one, known today as Hillview Manor, is said to be known as the most haunted site in western Pennsylvania. So, if they were successful with their reforms, Why is it so haunted? I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. In June 1925, 
the city of Newcastle, Pennsylvania started accepting bids to build the new Lawrence County Home for the Aged, essentially a poorhouse for the county's mentally ill, severely destitute, and elderly residents with no known family. This joint city-county home, to be built in Shenango Township on the Newcastle-Elwood Road, would replace the aging Newcastle City Home and consolidate various smaller institutions around the county. The Newcastle City Home, a working farm and collection of buildings located on Old Pittsburgh Road near the present-day site of the Shenango Elementary School, had been around since opening in November 1867. The facility had been built on 44 acres donated by Charles Phillips of Newcastle. Although there was initially a three-man board of what they called poor directors, one of them, a man named Robert Reynolds, largely kept the home in operation with his own financing and tireless efforts behind the scenes. Over the next three decades, the home usually maintained only two full-time staff members and housed about 10 inmates, as they were called, at any given time. By 1900, the resident population at its peak had increased to 27 inmates, but was down to 18 in 1920. The institution was for Newcastle residents only and was run by a superintendent, who was elected to a four-year term by the city commissioners. Assisting the superintendent was a similarly elected matron who personally oversaw all the female inmates. Perry D. Snyder and his wife Mary A. Snyder, first elected in March 1913, would serve in those respective posts for the next three decades. The state-of-the-art county home also included vocational rooms, a smoking room, several lounges, a bomb shelter, a laundry, a four-car garage, a large garden, a small working farm, and a cemetery. An excerpt from an article about the county home in Newcastle News of October 23, 1925 explains that aged people without a friend in the world will be able to spend their declining years in comfort. Most of the inmates were wards of the county and sentenced to confinement at the home. Construction was behind schedule, but the facility finally opened on Tuesday, October 19, 1926. On that day, the Snyders and their two children, about a dozen staff members and the first 20 inmates, left the old city home and took up residence in the nearby Lawrence County home. The new home did not generally take children, although a young boy was among the first 20 residents. The old city home was abandoned soon after and was later sold. The new county home worked in conjunction with several other facilities, including the Margaret Henry home and the Almira home. Orphaned and other similarly disadvantaged children were handled at the Margaret Henry home, known as the Holy Family Home prior to 1921, on Cunningham Avenue in Newcastle. The Almira home on East Washington Street in Newcastle was a haven for elderly women. Under the Schneider's long reign, the number of inmates steadily grew but fluctuated over the years, from 72 inmates in December 1928 to 176 in December 1934 and 136 in December 1939. In June 1944, county welfare officials and the Snyders came under fire during a rather heated public hearing held at the county courthouse investigating claims of incompetency at the home. The Snyders were both in their late 70s at this point and probably not suited to operate such a challenging facility. In the wake of the hearing, the Snyders were basically retired with pensions, but allowed to stay on at the home with reduced roles. By late August, with Perry Snyder sick in bed and Mary tending to him on many days, the Snyders were given three weeks to vacate the premises. 
that vacate order ended the Snyder's run of over 30 years of service to the local community. Mance B. Hogue, the longtime director of the county's welfare department, took over operation of the home. The Lawrence County home continued in operation for many years, and in the latter half of the 1960s, while under the supervision of Director Clarence E. Covert, was remodeled and morphed into a skilled nursing center. By 1970, the home was facing severe overcrowding issues and was housing an average of about 115 elderly people at any one time. In December 1974, the county decided to update and expand the home by adding a whole new section and remodeling some of the existing floors. The new three-story addition, with an additional basement floor to be built off of the woman's department, would allow the home to accommodate another 30 or so residents. A new kitchen and dining room and other occupational rooms were also included in the construction. The new North Wing cost $1.7 million and opened in mid-1977. Meanwhile, after a contest to find a more suitable name for the antiquated-sounding Lawrence County Home for the Aged, it was renamed as the Hillview Manor on March 22, 1977. Due to financial constraints, the county shut down Hillview Manor in January of 2004. The old home has gained quite the notoriety for being touted as one of the most haunted locations in all of western Pennsylvania. In 2008, local paranormalist Candy Braniff began leasing the facility and conducting ghost tours for the public. In May of 2013, Haunted Hillview Manor Incorporated took over the property and offers a wide variety of activities on the site. Over the years, quite a cast of characters has formed around the hauntings at Hillview. Many of the spirits have been given names and identities. The following few, while cited on the Elwood City website, were not names that I was able to connect with any records, but that doesn't mean they're not accurate per se. I just can't confirm them. Just like some historical websites say that 10,000 people passed at Hillview, a number I just can't see possible. But again, I can't necessarily disprove it. I guess what I'm getting at is always take reports and facts without backup with a grain of salt, but don't always assume they come from a place of malice. That being said, let's meet some of these ghosts. One of the most notable casualties in the history of the building is that of Eli Sari. Eli was a middle-aged man who was a resident there during the building's early days as a poor farm and halfway house. Eli was a recovering alcoholic, which the building commonly hosted. However, alcohol was forbidden in the building. Due to the strict no-alcohol policy, he decided to get his fix by leaving the building in order to go drinking. Eli was found by some of the other residents the next morning, laying outside of the front doors, passed out drunk, who then decided to carry him in and leave him in the boiler room to warm and sober up. Unfortunately, Eli never sobered up. He passed away in his slumber, likely from alcohol poisoning, and now his restless spirit is said to haunt the boiler room area. The ghost of Eli supposedly enjoys taunting women. There are several reports of women saying they were touched, grabbed, and pinched by who they believe is Eli. Many residents of the manor spent nearly their whole lives there, and many did not have any family. Mary Virginia, a cerebral palsy patient and resident of the home, was one of these residents. She spent most of her time playing dress-up and listening to music, and her room is still set up similarly to how she had it when she was a resident of the manor 
complete with toys, dolls, makeup, costumes, jewelry, and a music player. Many of the rooms, and specifically the basement, are filled with personal belongings to many of the passed-on residents. According to paranormal reports, Mary's ghost is friendly and responds well to her trigger objects, her former belongings, showing her presence by swinging the necklaces that hang above her bed, moving her dolls, and faintly playing her favorite music tunes into investigators' recording devices. Again, that's direct from the Elwood City website. Another favorite spirit among ghost hunters is a child spirit supposedly named Jeffrey. Jeffrey is supposedly a nine-year-old boy who lived in the manor with his 11-year-old brother, and according to investigators, his 11-year-old brother was adopted while Jeffrey was not. They did not know Jeffrey's name until he said it in one of their digital recorders. There is no record of the exact room Jeffrey lived in, However, there are child toys scattered throughout one of the second floor rooms for his spirit to interact with. George, a spirit that lives in the basement, is said to be a former maintenance man. He is also said to be a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and he is reported to be very distasteful to the idea of visitors rooting for other teams. People have claimed to be smacked in the back of the head for mentioning another team. Sounds like a lot of New Englander sports fans I know. PhillyGhost.com also has some reports listed on their website. Two brothers reportedly visited Hillview because their grandmother used to live there. An EVP was captured with a woman using a family nickname that no one else would have known. Another relative stated that her grandmother used to play the piano every day at the facility. Now a spirit can be heard tickling the ivories late into the evening. One woman who worked as a nurse had numerous experiences while working. On one occasion, while walking from the east wing to the west wing, she claimed a very cold and cloudy form passed through her. It did not frighten her, only gave her an incredible chill. On other occasions, when on the second floor near the break room, it would not be uncommon for her to see what appeared to be someone walking down the hall, but upon checking things out, nobody was ever there. So, to get to the bottom of these reports and hear about them firsthand, up next, we're going to be chatting with Melissa Keene. She is a tour guide at Hillview, and she has been investigating the site for over a decade. That is coming up after the break. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I am sitting here with Melissa Keene, who is one of the tour guides at Hillview Manor. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Now, how did you get involved with Hillview? How long have you been there? Tell us all the lowdown. Well, I've actually been investigating actively for about 11 years. And my very first investigation was at Hillview Manor. Mm. I just instantly fell in love with the place and went back as often as I could. 
And then about three years ago, a friend of mine called me and he said, hey, the owner's having an informational meeting. She wants to hire a bunch of new employees. Are you interested? I said, of course I'm interested (laughs) and came to the meeting. And here we are three years later. And it's just, it's the best job in the world. That's amazing. So tell me, what is Hillview's kind of, um, what is their mission at the moment? What is their kind, what's the idea for the building? Right now, we're trying to preserve the history and preserve the building itself as much as we can. Um, It's a very large building. It's 85,000 square feet. And, you know, there's a lot of upkeep for a building that isn't used on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we have problems with the roof and problems with uh, everything, every problem you can imagine with a building that large. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we're just trying to, you know, preserve it and preserve all the history that came with it. And well, I mean, it's a noble cause. I will say, I don't know that people realize how quickly these buildings kind of start to deteriorate once they are empty. It's really weird to think about how it just takes humans being inside on a regular basis to kind of keep a building together. But once a structure stops being regularly climate controlled and maintained, it starts to fall apart pretty quickly. Exactly. I never realized that. And the facility closed, uh, I'm sure, as you mentioned, in 2004. So it really hasn't been that long, but it's been enough to really have some damage in the building that we're trying very hard to get repaired. I'm trying to think back. So I was there with ghost hunters investigating, and admittedly, At this point in my life, I have been in so many old, abandoned-type hospital buildings that they just run together. (laughs) Well, I said, I'll I'll be visiting a location like, okay, this hallway looks frighteningly familiar. (laughs) The structures start to look the same, so I 100% understand. They do, but I don't think we were there very long after it closed. It had to have been five or six years. I do remember it being one of the first investigations we attempted to bring a dog along with us. That's really what stands out to me. But I do remember it being very active. So you said that was your first place that you investigated. So that could have gone two ways. That could have been like, wow, this is the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. I'm never doing this again to, I guess, wow, this was scary and cool. And now I'm just going to do this for 11 more years. So (laughs) what what happened that first time you were there that made you want to stay? Well, it was pretty much nonstop activity. When we were just leaving the foyer for the tour, we're saying, now it's still day when the tour was starting. And I turned around because I heard footsteps coming up behind me. It sounded like a woman's high heels clicking. Mm -hmm. And I turned around and the hallway was completely empty. Mm. And I looked over at my friend with these big eyes and he just nodded and went, yep. Hillview many times. So it was right out of the gate. Then when we were on the third floor, I had a shadow figure like manifest in front of me. I would just happen to be standing there taking pictures at the nurse's station and was kind of, you know, doing the three pictures and turning a little bit. And I literally watched a shadow like form up in front of me and then dart out to the left and was gone. I was like, okay. So that's interesting. And that's actually like a perfect example. So I used to be really big on taking photos and like you did taking, you know, three in a row. I always tell told people to take three in a row so that if there was something anomalous, you could kind of see it in each photo and see where it comes from or if it moves or that kind of thing. Now I'm not really big on spirit photography. I think that's a whole other program. But one of the reasons I tell people to kind of shy away from taking tons of photos is that you might miss something walking right in front of you. (laughs) <laughs> and so you were exactly <laughs> so you were really lucky 
Yeah, I was very lucky. I said, no, I'm very much like you. I've moved away. I'll take some photos, but Mm -hmm. I'm much more, I've moved away from taking as many photos when I'm investigating. Yeah. I mean, obviously flashes, it kind of messes up with your night vision too, if you're investigating in the dark. You know, also, so now I've just gotten to the point where so many photos are explainable that I want something else, you know, but that's still, that's very, very cool. I've heard so many stories come out of there that doesn't surprise me at all. Now, I've heard and just kind of going through the history and going through a lot of the reports, sounds like a lot of the spirits there have been given names over the years. Is that still the case? It sounds like there's a lot of, you know, different names and identities. I I read about a spirit that doesn't like to talk about football or he's a big Steelers fan or something. That is George. He is a big Steelers fan. I mean, makes sense, you know, geographically speaking. It very much is. And it's funny because he mainly likes the, I hate to say the old school Steelers, but the Terry Bradshaw, the Jack Lambert, the Jack Cam days. And we can occasionally even get him talking about hockey, but like all the rest of us long-suffering Pirates fans, if you bring them up, he's just like, yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. So, <laughs> You know, isn't that so funny, though, that people go into a location and they start trying to talk to these spirits. We start, I think sometimes it's our inclination to just start asking the very hard-hitting questions, like, you know, do you know you're dead? But if you come in and bring up something that a lot of people like to talk about, like sports, like that is a really good way to get a response. And so I think that's so cool that that's working for you guys. Yeah, we've discovered at Hillview that if you're much more conversational, you get a lot better responses. I sometimes feel like, you know, people come in, like you said, and they ask the same questions. The spirits are like rolling their eyes, like, are we doing this interrogation again? Right. (laughs) But we've discovered, again, if you much more conversational and almost try and let them lead the conversation, if you know what I'm talking about, and see where it goes. That makes sense. And now, so the spirits that you're encountering, what do you think their mindset is for the most part? You know, we often wonder that ourselves. The question we keep asking and we've never gotten an answer is what does the building look like right now? Like Mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out, do they see it as it is now or do they see it as it was then? Like when they were here Mm -hmm. and we haven't gotten an answer. And we're wondering if they don't understand the question because for them, their reality is what they're seeing. So what do you mean? What does it look like? And we don't know how to phrase that. Like we've tried a bunch of different ways And so we don't know whether it's just they don't understand or they just aren't going to answer us. Right. I mean, it's a very compelling question. And we've actually asked that before, too. It kind of raises the idea, too, like, why do ghosts appear wearing clothes? It's got to be some sort of kind of interpretation of themselves in a way. I mean, that's just my theory. I don't claim to know any of this. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, are they projecting a reality or is there some sort of reality created in their existence that mirrors what was there when they were alive? It reminds me years ago when we were doing Ghost Hunters at the Mount Washington Hotel and Jay and Grant, they were in the princess room and they asked her, princess, are you here? And she was like, of course I'm here. Where are you? And so it's like, that might be it. They're like, why are they asking these ridiculous questions? Right. Exactly. It's you're thinking like, okay, great. The spirits think that I'm stupid. So we'll just move on. Right. (laughs) I mean, who knows? I kind of feel like what I like about what I'm seeing with Hillview right now, just kind of going through the history and stuff is that you guys are really moving away from like 
this is a really scary asylum type thing. It seems like they're really trying to put a positive spin on the location because really what it, it used to be with that. Is that the case? Yeah, it really is because we think, again, it, I don't know whether it was to get the name out or they just honestly thought that. I honestly don't know. I know a lot of our spirits got a really bad rap. The one I always think of was Eli. Oh, he was this violent drunk and this, that, and the other thing. And we have never come across Eli being violent at all. But we've also really like sat down and talked to him. Like I said, had these conversational moments with him. And he's actually a pretty fun guy. You know, this was a nursing home for the majority of its life or a poor farm. This wasn't a prison. This wasn't an insane asylum. Did they take in mentally ill patients? Yes, they did. But we actually got lucky enough last year and the year before we had a whole group of previous staff members visit us. Wow. And oh, we followed them around that building. I felt like the paparazzi filming them and taking their pictures. And it was great for us because they worked there in 70s, 80s, 90s. There was one woman there. Her great grandmother worked there in the 40s. Wow. We had everything covered and you could see how much they loved the facility. And every one of them said that that was their favorite place that they worked in their entire careers. Well, that's a really great frame of reference, too. I think it's really easy to go into these kind of older buildings and get scared and get spooky. And we can thank horror movies for that. We can thank, you know, shows like I was on Ghost Hunters for that. When we were on, it was all about scary, being scary. And... I do love kind of seeing this evolution of, you know, let's take a step back and just imagine for a moment what this actually was and then treat the spirits accordingly. And I bet the staff being there, that was probably, did that do anything to the activity levels in the place? It did. The whole time we were in there, it, like the building felt happy, if you know what I mean. It was just this wonderful feeling. And then for the next couple of days, the activity was through the roof. And it was mm -hmm. all this like super positive, like uplifting communication and stuff. It was like they were really, really happy. Yeah, I bet they recognized some of them or at least their energy or their voices. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it was because, you know, as they're walking us through, they're telling us stories that we'd never heard. They were verifying stories that we had heard. You know, it was just, oh, yeah, I remember this guy who was in this room. Like I said, I think I wrote a notebook full of notes. It was mm -hmm. just an amazing experience. Well, that's going to be really good to have too for future investigations. And now you've got names you can bring up too. I always feel like names are a really powerful thing to have in your arsenal when you're investigating because like that's a triggering thing that's like, oh, we have someone in common. Do you know this person? Like, let's talk about it. Now, that aside though, I am curious to know, like, have you ever at any point been scared in the building or been frightened or freaked out? Yeah, it has happened once or twice. Yes. We know that something had been opened up, whether it was a portal or a doorway or whatever opened up. And we've been having some problems with it from time to time. We try and bring people in who can maybe help address it. But, you know, unfortunately, I guess there's no way to shut it down. I'm in no way an expert and I could be completely incorrect on this. We have had some problems and what we call Amanda stairwell. That's the stairwell that goes down into the basement. Mm -hmm. uh, when we go around a lock up at night, you just step in there. And half the time, I don't even turn the light on right there. There's enough ambient light from the hallway. And the one night I stepped in there to lock it up and I heard something and looked over in the corner and I could see a dark figure in the corner hissing at me. Ooh. Ooh, okay. And I was just like, okay, you can take yourself right back down to the basement. I'm just locking the doors. <laughs> and I, I finished locking and I got myself out of there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
But you came back to work after that. So I did. That's- I did. I'm, I'm not going to let them scare me out. And we do have something that's been less than friendly creeping around on the second floor. It's been ha- coming in and out of Jeffrey's room. Jeffrey is the little nine-year-old boy. We had been discovering that Jeffrey either wasn't in his room or was being essentially bullied into not talking. And we figured out whatever this is, it's squatting in there. Mm. And it won't really tell us its name, but it has come down the hall at us a couple of times. And you'll look up into the window in that hallway and you'll see red eyes looking back at you for a split second. Like we've even sent somebody up, all right, who's up there with a laser grid or who's up there messing around? And there's nobody in the hallway. Sounds like a job for kindred spirits. It does. (laughs) It absolutely does. (laughs) (laughs) We need to get in there. That's right. Because, you know, we don't want it up there bullying our, bullying our spirits and, you know, and necessarily scaring people off. It doesn't show up very often, but when it does it, it's, it's pretty aggressive. I mean, Mm. it hasn't touched anybody. It hasn't harmed anybody, but you know, the feeling when something unfriendly is glaring at you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes in these places that either have a lot of energy or spirits in them or have people investigating frequently, you know, sometimes other energies or other entities come in, they they can tell like, oh, wait, they can see and hear them over there, you know, or things kind of form from that energy. It's really strange. I, just the last few years, I've really started putting more stock in the idea of like our intentions and what we can do to a, a space and so who knows? But that, I mean, it sounds very interesting for sure. Yeah, no. And that's, that's funny. We were discussing that too. Is, is that something that happened here? Like you said, mm-hmm. from all of the urban legends or the history, and, you know, we've heard a lot of them about things that went on there that we can't prove or disprove. Right. And we've often wondered if that wasn't the ill intentions taking form. Right. It's not even just ill intentions. I think sometimes People come in and when we have public investigations, which I do a lot, I, do, I take a lot of groups into places. I know how I felt when I first started investigating and how kind of like nervous I, not really even nervous, I was just like a ball of like, I don't know what's about to happen. There was this mixture of like anxiety and excitement and fear. And I always think like, what is happening if we just keep bringing that vibe into a place over and over and over again. Like what happens to that space? I talk about this in my book a little bit about how if you think you can infuse your home with positivity and you can have a vision board and you can make changes that way, then you believe in energy manipulating your area and your your life. So we, I think that has a lot of other applications and other scenarios like this one or many other haunted places I've been in. But that's getting a little deep and it does go. <laughs> no, but that's, ac- that's actually really excellent. And <laughs> I- I'm going to be giving that a lot of thought, I can tell you. So <laughs> let's let kindred spirits get there, though, and figure it out. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. We'll get you guys there. <laughs> yeah, it's time for a revisit. Now, are there any particular spirits that are your favorite? Are there any areas that you that you're fond of the most? On the third floor, actually, it was, I hate to say it's funny, but, you know, during the early days of the pandemic, when everything shut down and all the businesses had to be closed, we still went up a couple of times a week, a check the building. We did live streams, keep the people engaged, let the spirits know that we hadn't forgotten about them, things like that. And we started going into random rooms, you know, with a building this big, we tend to stick to the hot spots. And we're like, you know, this building is so big, there's got to be stories in every room. So we just randomly picked rooms. Well, we picked one up on the third floor that for years, a psychic had told us there were spirits of children in there. Well, there really shouldn't have been. 
So we went in and really started investigating in there. And we started talking to the spirit of a little girl named Ellie. And Ellie has quickly become a favorite. Because of the interaction with them, we did a bunch of research. I'm sure either the local historical society is going to put a plaque up with my name or get me banned. I'm not really sure. What. <laughs> and when the facility first opened, they took in tuberculosis patients. And if the families didn't have anyone to take care of their children, they used this particular room as a dormitory. Uh, okay. Which we never knew. Mm-hmm. So now it makes sense. And yeah, Ellie is just, she's this bundle of light energy. And it doesn't matter where I'm at in the building. If I'm walking down a hallway on the first floor to lock up and I usually have something running and I'll hear, hi, Melissa. Oh, so she knows you. She, yeah, she's, she's a favorite. She just brings all this positive energy. Yeah, that's great. I love George. George is my buddy because, you know, Mm -hmm. Steelers, Penguins, what what can we say? (laughs) (laughs) And, And probably on the second floor, my other favorite is Mary Aiello. She was absolutely phenomenal. We've been lucky enough to have like her family members and some of her nurses come in and visit us. And they said she had the most wicked sense of humor and she still does. Wow. Like you could go in there and have entire conversation. Go sit down. How's it going, Mary? And it'll be like, oh God, you again. (laughs) What I like about that is that this Mary's family and the staff members are, you know, on board with the idea that her spirit might be there. Do they ever come in and and like try to interact with her or do you, do you see a spike in activity when they do that? Sometimes her niece has come in a couple of times and there's definitely been a spike in activity when, when she's around. And like I said, anytime former staff members come in that Mm -hmm. night is guaranteed to be much more active than a normal night. It's always a thrill for us when we get family members to come in and get more stories. And I'm sure you've heard the stories, Jimmy up on the third floor and his roommate, Lester. We had all of Lester's children visit us once. And like the activity that entire weekend was through the roof. Usually Lester's the more quiet of the two. And it was all Lester all the time that weekend, which was phenomenal. Wow. I mean, I always wonder sometimes if that helps them realize too, like, you know, whether they, they want to stick around. I, I always talk uh, about how, you know, the whole idea of crossing over to me, I, I, I used to subscribe to that idea, but I don't really as much anymore. But I do feel like sometimes closure is a thing. And so sometimes bringing family members in to talk to them or, you know, figuring out why they're hanging around. And so I could totally see that. And I wonder if that would ever kind of instigate them to go to wherever they're supposed to go next. But I also feel like a lot of the people that were at Hillview, especially back when it was a poor farm, which I didn't really realize until I started digging into the history, is that the idea of that was like there were people, and this still happens today, of course, where everyone they knew dies or, you know, they are left alone and they don't have money and they need somewhere to go. And so I wonder sometimes if because this is what gave them comfort or this is what was home to them and they and, and in life they had nowhere else that they're afraid to go anywhere else. Right. No, that's I had never even heard of a poor farm until I started investigating at Hillview. And then I did very much the same thing, dug into the history of poor farms in general, into Hillview. And yeah, I mean, with a lot of our spirits, that was the only home they ever knew. Mary Virginia, our one spirit, lived there her entire life until the facility closed. Jimmy Mm -hmm. came there in 1958 and lived there until the facility closed in 2004. So, you know, for a lot of them, this may have been the only home they ever knew. Well, that certainly puts some things in perspective. So now have you guys opened back up now for like public tours and things and investigations? Oh, absolutely. So if people want to do that, where do they go? Well, we have a Facebook page and it's Haunted Hillview. 
or we have a website and it's www.hauntedhillviewmanor.com. That's great. And so they, you guys are doing actual like investigations and do you do daytime tours as well? We do. We do. Now we oh, are that's currently closed for the season because, you know, the ambient air temperature right now is four degrees, mm. which means it's about 18 degrees in our building. Whatever the temperature is outside, that's what it is inside. <laughs> we do reopen uh, the second weekend of March. Well, that's perfect. That gives people time to plan. I mean, right now it is January, but who knows whenever you're listening, just know they're close till March. (laughs) Yeah, we do day tours. We do public investigations, private investigations. We have a whole bunch of really exciting events coming up this year. So it's going to be a great year. Well, that's awesome. So I encourage everyone to check out Hillview. I definitely plan on getting back. I'm going to pitch it like crazy for our next season. And so hopefully we can meet in person at some point, Melissa. That would be fantastic, Amy. I would absolutely love that. And I'd love to show you guys around Hillview again. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate all your insight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for talking about Hillview. We really appreciate it. I have to note that as I did research on Hillview, I obviously found a number of obituaries showing it as the place of death for so many. But what outnumbered those newspaper articles were highlights of positive happenings there. 4-H clubs holding cooking classes, youth groups entertaining patients with Christmas carols, dance troops giving patients free lessons, crafts and knitting circles, you name it. And though today the building no longer serves its original function as a care home, it now has a larger purpose as a functioning community center. A documentary film profile from the Westminster College News talks about how the space is utilized for high school dances, for Halloween programming for kids, and for facilitating community events in collaboration with the town police department. So while notorious and somewhat ironically known for death, In many ways, Hillview Manor is still very much alive and well. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. If you want to join us on a spooky vacation, please check out my company Strange Escapes at strange-escapes.com. Also, new episodes of Kindred Spirits are currently airing on Travel Channel on Saturday nights at 10, 9 central or streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Research by Taylor Hagerdorn, Amy Bruni, and Robin Miniter. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.